Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. Is that the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Sure, with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. Welcome to episode 184 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Three cases today, all from Supreme Courts, two from the United States Supreme Court and one from the Indiana Supreme Court. The first case today is from the Indiana Supreme Court, Cosme versus Clark, Dan Chirilla, doing business as Chirilla Insurance and Erie Insurance Exchange. The second case is from the Supreme Court of the United States, Moore versus United States. And the third is from the Supreme Court as well, Harrington versus Purdue Pharma LP. Turning to our first case, in an argument featuring five advocates, including two amicus, the Indiana Supreme Court will consider in Cosme versus Clark, Dan Trilla doing business as Trilla Insurance and Erie Insurance Exchange, whether it should grant transfer to determine whether to change the standard for directed verdict in an insurance coverage and broker malpractice case. The court note on the case describes it thusly, quote, Erie Insurance Exchange canceled the Cosby's auto insurance. The Cosby's were in an accident three days later, and Erie denied coverage. The Cosby's sued Erie and their insurance agent, Dan Chirilla, at the close of the Cosby's case in chief. The Lake Superior Court granted Erie's and Chirilla's motions for judgment on the evidence. The Court of Appeals affirmed, finding that Erie legally terminated the policy and that Chirilla acted with reasonable care and good faith. Cosby versus Warfield Clark, Chirilla, and Erie Insurance Exchange, 22ACT, 1897, Indiana Court of Appeals, March 8, 2023. Memorandum, transfer pending. The Cosby's have petitioned the Indiana Supreme Court to accept jurisdiction over the appeal, arguing that the current standard violates the state constitution's guarantee of a right to trial by jury by allowing the judge to qualitatively evaluate the evidence. The plaintiff and its amici of the Indiana Trial Lawyers Association argue that the case should be remanded for trial. In the strange bedfellows category, this position was joined by the insurance broker in opposition, Erie and its amici, Defense Trial Council of Indiana, asserted that the current standard should remain. The first issue to be considered, of course, because we're dealing with Indiana courts, is whether the transfer should be granted by the state high court, as Indiana is apparently the only state that has that current standard. That seems likely, and for no other reason to reaffirm the procedure. Pat is on the DTCI amicus committee, but he did not have a role in drafting the brief. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And the uh, this really the, the the core issue here is not the substance of the uh, of the issues, uh, or the it's this procedural issue of the motion for directed verdict and whether the court, whether and to what extent the court can take into account its evaluation of the credibility of the witnesses. And in this case, the court, as Dan said, directed verdict in in favor of the insurance company, finding that the policy was properly canceled, uh, and then directed verdict in their favor. And there's an issue regarding whether whether they're allowed to evaluate witness credibility. Normally, that's left to defendants. I'm not so sure that Indiana is the only state that does this. And looking at, uh, in another context, in Illinois, uh, our procedure seems to have some element of witness credibility evaluation going on with directed verdicts. So I'm not so sure this is unique. That's how it was characterized at the oral argument. Dan mentioned five advocates. So you had counsel for the plaintiff. You had counsel for Erie. You had counsel for the broker. You had counsel for... Uh, uh, amicus, uh, the Trial Lawyers Association, and you had amicus from uh, Defense Trial Council of Indiana. What was strange about this was that Defense Trial Council of Indiana went first for the for the insurance company, and the insurance company went next. I, I th- found that a bit curious, but it really points to the issue here is broader. And I think we talked recently about the Gearsick case 
again, where there were a lot of, uh, well, where the, um, the court has to decide what to do with this, this claim. And in that case, they've asked for briefing from everyone. Uh, you know, just like an open letter to the bar. Hey, can you give us some briefs by January 31st? So they're very much struggling with what to do with this issue. In that case, it's a standing issue under the Medical Malpractice Act. Um, but they've just issued this open letter. They, similar thing occurred. Not They didn't issue the open letter, but the parties all came in. And so the, the question that the court has to decide is, are we happy with this standard that we set forth about a decade or so ago that allows the, the trial court to take into account some element of a witness credibility evaluation? Or are we going to scrap it and leave those kinds of determinations out of it entirely? Uh, you can see a situation where a witness comes in and they're just totally incredible. It's the judge just is like, I don't believe this person. And the argument the trial lawyers in Indiana consistently make in a whole range of cases I think we've talked about over the years is the open courts provision of the Indiana Constitution and the idea that, you know, where there's a right, there's a remedy and where the um, uh, that the the right to a trial by jury should not be disparaged. And they view this as one of one of those. I certainly, you know, Dan and I talked a couple of years ago about uh, a scholar down at the University of Illinois that that views motions for summary judgment as in derogation of the Seventh Amendment. Uh, in, in federal court and near every state I'm aware of has a similar provision uh, that allows for summary judgment procedure where a trial isn't going to be, isn't necessary because there's no disputes of fact for the jurors to figure out and the issues are ones of law. So it, the, the facts of this case are less important than the policy of what do we do with this standard? Because if the standard is that the judge is allowed to, the trial judge is allowed to evaluate credibility as he was the only judge that was there, or he or she was the only judge that was there. I don't know how you overturn manifest weight, or how you overturn such a judgment if part of the judgment is based, based part of the directed verdict is based upon their findings of credibility. Uh, <coughs> so if they say the standard's fine, then you're, you're, uh, the case is probably going to stand. But if they say, hey, we need to take a look at this standard, well, that's a different kettle of fish, uh, and and maybe they need to narrow the standard to not uh, not evaluate credibility uh, and, and so forth. Uh, so, a big issue in both trial procedure and appellate procedure is coming. Uh, whether it remains the same or has changed, there, there's something substantial coming, uh, and uh, that's going to be interesting and important to, to keep track of. Uh, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. Very important issues here and, and a very interesting issue. And I think we've mentioned before on this, you see these arguments sometimes in the arbitration arena as well, that uh, sending it to an arbitrator violates the, the right to a jury trial. And uh, again, they're, they're, they're interesting arguments in, in that case by contract. You know, you can get into arguments about whether you had any bargaining power, but in those cases, you know, the uh, neutral typically will say that you know the arbitration agreement says that it's you're waiving your right to a jury trial so that's the, the way it is but very important issues here like you said and I, I, I agree that I can't imagine Indiana's the only state that has this kind of process uh, but uh, as, as we mentioned in the introduction of this case I can't imagine Indiana not taking transfer of the Supreme Court because if they don't then this thing just sits out there, and it's, uh, it's an important issue, I think, that needs to be addressed. Well, if they don't take it, they're just saying, hey, we're happy with the standard we've got, and yeah. uh, leave it alone, and leave us, don't, don't, uh, don't bother with this anymore. Right. But the fact they had oral argument and, and, and uh, didn't just deny it outright tells you that they're at least thinking about it. That they, obviously, they recognize the importance of the issue they've been presented with, and they need yeah. to try to get to the bottom of it and give some clarity for everybody because it's not like the rule that they opposed is all that old. It's only about 10 or 12 years old. So and they, there hasn't been, we've talked about my uh, view of stare decisis. If it's wrong, it's wrong. Get rid of it. 
but the kinds of reliance interest, I don't see really reliance interest in this, but the kind of pattern that you would have expected and the way that you would practice having had all that much time in lesser than they would be if this was a rule that was, you know, decades old as opposed to just over With that, we'll take our uh, first break and come back with the first of our two Supreme Court of the United States cases. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment two of episode 184 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And we should have mentioned at the top of the show that this is the first episode of season four of the show. It's hard to believe that it's been uh, four, this is the fourth year that uh, we're beginning. Uh, we've done this for three years now. We're now in our fourth year. So uh, we've only done 100, we've done 184 episodes, which ain't bad. Uh, we also should mention that we have a special episode coming up on uh, January 12th. Uh, it'll be released probably that 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 evening uh, with uh, David Mara and Brian Fitzpatrick regarding uh, third-party litigation funding in an article that they wrote. So we'll discuss we'll discuss that. That'll be uh, that'll be very interesting. Uh, so turning to the order of the day, which in this case is in a case that asks the scope of the general government's power to tax and tax and scope of the decision in Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust Company, one fifty-seven U.S. four twenty-nine nineteen or sorry eighteen ninety-five. That was subsequently superseded by the 16th Amendment. The Supreme Court of the United States will, will answer the following question in Moore versus United States. Does the 16th Amendment authorize Congress to tax unrealized sums without apportionment between the states? Oye sets forth the facts as follows. In 2005, the Moors invested $40,000 in Kissencraft, an Indian company that supplies tools to small farmers, in exchange for 11% of the common shares. Kissencraft is a controlled foreign corporation, CFC, meaning it's majority owned by U.S. persons but operates abroad. Prior to 2017, U.S. shareholders of CFCs were typically taxed on foreign earnings only when those earnings were repatriated to the United States according to the provision called Subpart F. However, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the TCJA, of 2017 significantly changed this, introducing a one-time mandatory repatriation tax, MRT, that retroactively taxed CFC earnings after 1986, regardless of repatriation. This increased the Moore's 2017 tax liability by approximately $15,000 based on their share of Kissencraft's retained earnings. The Moore's challenged the constitutionality of this tax, but the district court dismissed their suit, holding that the MRT taxed income, and although it was retroactive, did not violate the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed. Dan, tell us about this case. Thanks, Pat. A lot going on here, and, and uh, as we talked about on the show, the challenge in current Supreme Court's watching and analyzing cases is that this one went on in two hours and about five minutes. Very long case, and a lot at issue here. The the amount at stake in this case, we've talked about this before too, is that you know, the Supreme Court of the United States is a court for all issues of last resort. There's only $15,000 at stake here, not a, not a monumental amount, but the, the exposure and the amount of money that can be uh, at issue here is, is in the jillions of dollars. I mean, you can't even come up with a number that would, would adequately, if this case were to go uh, the way that the Moors wants, uh, you, you can't imagine the impact to uh, the uh, our, our budget and everything else in this country. So uh, a lot going on there. Well, and, and, and the converse: if they lose, then the wealth that's then the wealth tax that Senator Warren and others have talked about is on the table. Right. Uh, because income, the word income in the Sixteenth Amendment doesn't mean income; it means wealth. And so it goes the other way, and now they can tax anything they want. 
And that's, you know, that's a good point. And, and that was what some of uh, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and some of the other more conservative justices uh, were skeptical of uh, Prologar's uh, position here and the government's position with respect to uh, what what's the slippery slope that goes on here. So you raise an interesting point. You, you, you mentioned in the introduction Pollock versus Farmers, and it was a case in the 1890s. In that, in that case, they did find that the act, uh, the Income Tax uh, Act, violated the Constitution because it imposed taxes on personal income derived from real estate investments and personal property, and it was a direct taxation scheme not allocated. And, and uh, so, uh, as you mentioned, the 16th Amendment, of course, instituted the uh, income tax, and so Pollock was was overridden. Um, in this case, uh, you know the the, the, the it, it, if you listen to the oral argument, and again, it's a, it's a good oral argument, but if you listen to it, I think what you hear here is a, is a court that's struggling to figure out, like you said, Pat. There's two sides of this. On the one end, if you if you find uh, for the Moors, you you have a, a real impact and a real uh, real major impacts on. Uh, again, the government and how it collects taxes uh, could it could lead to challenging the income tax uh, amendment potentially. But the the um, on, on, on the flip side is if is if you uh, 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 go go if, if you go that route again, is that it's a slippery slope and it leads to uh, taxation. Like you said, it's not necessarily income. It could be wealth, and, and where do you end? Uh, there was talk about real estate, and you know, appreciated real estate that's not sold. Four hundred one k's, and, and uh, like you said, the wealth tax that Warren and others have have uh, proposed. Uh, a lot of good good discussion here in terms of uh, again what what the line is. Um, the um, uh, Solicitor General Lolik who's who's an excellent advocate, as we talked from this. Uh, show before she talked about the drafters of the 16th amendment she talked about the amendments text and history um, and, and then one of the questions justice sotomayor really focused on was the concept of realization uh, the idea of receiving money which which the moors that's part of the position that you have to have received money before something can qualify as income uh, she said it was very well established when the 16th amendment was adopted um, and again, they, they could have, uh, drafters, they could have used that term in the amendment. Um, and she talked about other examples of Congress taxing unrealized income. So that, that was uh, Sotomayor's position. Uh, she seemed to be persuaded by Prelogar. The uh, Justice, Justice Jackson um, talked about the common meaning of the term income rather than its legal meaning. Kagan also weighed in on that. Uh, the uh, one thing that, that seemed to be the case here is is that uh, some of the justices, I think Amy Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh especially, seemed to be sympathetic to this idea that uh, the court should issue a narrow ruling in this case and postpone or not really get into the uh, head-on issue that's presented by this case. We'll see if that happens. It's it's uh, th th this uh, uh, case I think is a, is a difficult one for the well all the cases that the justices face are difficult ones. But this is particularly a difficult question to answer, I think. And again, the the Moors themselves, fifteen thousand is at stake. But again, the the magnitude of this. This ain't about the fifteen thousand. No, nah, it's not about the fifteen thousand. Fifteen trillion. Fifteen trillion, and so it's a very interesting case. I, I uh, you know, I don't know how the justices will align on this one. It's a, a bit difficult, but I, I do think that, like in a lot of contexts we've talked about over the past couple of years, I, I, I get a sense that this will be some kind of narrow ruling. What, what that narrow ruling is, I'm not sure who writes it, uh, but. It'll be an interesting to see. I, I think we might get one of these cases where it might not align like the traditional cases that we talk about. So we'll see what happens with this one. I, I, I agree. I, 
I don't understand how anyone could interpret the 16th Amendment, the use of the word income, to mean anything other than a realized gain. Um, I, I just don't understand how it would apply in any other... I don't understand what that Although, means. Well, well uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. As a former accountant, Pat, and... Well, the, and, 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 tell, me where I, tell me where I've got it wrong. The word income again. There's there, there are, uh, the, for example, corporations pay on unrealized uh, gains and losses on their portfolio now as mark to market, and so that's referred to as unrealized income. So that that's an accounting term. Uh, income is not just the things that come in the door. We live we live in an accrual economy, so that's part of it as well. If we were in a cash economy, income would be cash in the door. But um, and when I teach accounting for lawyers. And, and every accounting professor will tell you that that on an accrual basis, things not in hand are counted and, and or deferred, just because that's the way that we account for things. And, and you you pay income, uh, whether you've got the money in the door or not. You, you sometimes pay income on. So, for example, at my law firm, the K ones go out in, in in March. We're on a, a fiscal year, a performance year ends in November. We get distributions and profit shares in January that get attributed back to 2023. We don't have money in the door, but we had to pay taxes on that for 2023. So I think that's some of the arguments that that, that uh, I, I think some of the accountants would, would talk about uh, and that the word income is not necessarily cash in the door. Does it matter? Because I think you, your first, the first part of your explanation, I understand the second part. The first part you talked about corporations is there a reason to think that they would be treated differently for taxing a corporation under the 16th Amendment than taxing individuals? That I don't know. I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's a, a, that's a, a reasonable question. As, yeah, I kind of see them as being treated differently under the 16th Amendment. But well, but the corporations are people, remember. Well, I'm putting the citizen <laughs> United States aside. I knew that was going to I knew, I knew that was where we were headed. I knew, I knew we couldn't get away, far away from Citizens United. <laughs> or Dartmouth or any of the other cases that have thought about corporate beings. <laughs> but exactly. it, 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 it raises interesting questions, Pat. And I don't, I don't know the answer to this, and I, I, I agree with you. But I They're going to be very careful how they draft this opinion. I think so. Uh, and, and, and talk to some accountants. So, yeah. as you say, they don't, they, they, I think they want it. They're going to, this is one case. Where just Chief Justice Roberts' inclination to narrow things is actually a good thing. Right. They need to say this particular tax is either good or bad. Yep. This particular one. We're not saying anything about any other taxes, so they don't throw a monkey wrench into the whole the whole <laughs> scheme. Uh, I agree. Because you know my concerns on one hand and Dan's concerns on the other, if they do that, could you know disrupt the entire system. Uh, and uh, while that will be good for lawyers, it may not be good for anyone else. Right. Lawyers are accountants. It, it won't be good for anybody else actually producing things. Right. So, so with that, we will. But it also does give further credence to John Maynard Keynes in one of the great ironic statements of all time: "The only worthwhile activity, only worthwhile intellectual activity, is the avoidance of tax." Um, so there's that. With that, we'll take our break and come back with segment three of episode 184 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 184 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And as Pat said, uh, happy anniversary to us and happy fourth season. And uh, the the numbers don't add up because we've done quite a bit of uh Especially in the early years, we did a lot of uh, special guesting. As Pat said, we have a special segment uh, coming up later this week, so stay tuned for that. The question presented in Harrington versus Purdue Pharma LP is, does the bankruptcy code authorize a court to approve as part of a plan of reorganization under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code, a release that extinguishes claims held by non-debtors against non-debtor third parties without the claimant's consent? This is a like a 
this is like the World Series for bankruptcy lawyers. Uh, my bankruptcy colleagues were just uh, are really following this case. Oye summarized the facts as follows, quote, heavily influenced the company's direction and was instrumental in the development and marketing of OxyContin. Despite initial claims of low addiction risk, growing evidence of widespread abuse led to legal battles across the United States with multiple stakeholders, including individuals, state governments, and federal agencies suing Purdue. In 2004, the board of Purdue entered into an expansive indemnity agreement to protect its directors and officers from financial liability related to lawsuits. This prediction was especially broad. Protection, not prediction. Uh, extending even after the official tenure at Purdue, but contained a bad faith carve-out. From 2007 onwards, the Sacklers began shielding assets, anticipating litigation against them personally. By 2019, Purdue faced weakened financial prospects, and the Sacklers had stepped down from the board. In the same year, the DOJ brought criminal and civil charges against Purdue, resulting in a plea agreement in 2020 that prioritized the DOJ's claims and Purdue's bankruptcy proceedings. The plea stipulated a $2 billion forfeiture judgment, but allowed for the release of $1.775 billion if certain conditions were met. Although Purdue declared bankruptcy in 2019, the Sacklers did not, and litigation against both parties was temporarily halted. The estate of Purdue is estimated to be around $1.8 billion, while claims against both Purdue and the Sacklers are ex estimated to exceed $40 trillion, and then we got the trillions again. The U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York confirmed a proposed bankruptcy plan on September 17, 2021. This plan included a shareholder release that, in effect, permanently enjoined certain third-party claims against the Sacklers. Several parties objected to the plan, but the Bankruptcy Court rejected their claims. On appeal to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, the District Court overturned the Bankruptcy Court's confirmation, holding that the Bankruptcy Court Code does not allow for the forced release of direct claims against non-debtors. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed the District Court's order, holding that the Bankruptcy Code does not permit non-consensual third-party releases of direct claims and affirmed the Bankruptcy Court's approval of the plan, end quote. For bankruptcy practitioners and for others, this is a very important case. Pat, tell us about this case. I, I want to expand how important it is. Uh, it, this is huge in the mass tort context. Whether we're talking about asbestos or we're talking about these kinds of cases or uh, 3M with the uh, earphones or J&J &J with the talc, um, all of those they've used bankruptcy in one way or another to gather up all these claims because you've got fe the Fed, the, uh, the Constitution gives Congress the authority to deal with bankruptcy. And you couple that with the supremacy clause and you have a you have a means to gather up every claim there is, state, federal, in a way you can't really do in an MDL or in other class procedures, gather that up in a, in a bankruptcy, put them together, and sort out the claims. So it's a very powerful procedure. And one of the things that's been done over the last 30 years, and at oral argument, Justice Kavanaugh in particular was like, there's no problem with this is that this can apply to releases of not of claims who are not debtors. None of the Sacklers and their billions of dollars uh, are in bankruptcy because they're not. The entity is a ba is bankrupt. And so this what this would release it, they would this would release them from liability too. And so the question is can you do that? And there's a split. Some of the circuits hold that you can and some of the circuits hold you can't. I don't remember the particulars of which ones can and can't. There's a split. And the Second Circuit said that this could be done. The trustee, the bankruptcy trustee, and the, the Solicitor General's office on behalf of the trustee has always argued that this can't be done and that this is improper. And the trustee is objecting. And then you have the, and you have the overwhelming majority of the taker of the personal injury claimants have approved this. It's like 90, 97% or something, something in the very high 90s have approved this plan. Now, there was originally a plan to settle for like $2 billion, if I got that right, Dan, something like that, or $6 billion, something like that. Something like and, that. And then when it got rejected, they went back and all of a sudden there was more money. And after the first time, they were told, or before the first time, they were told, hey, this is all there's ever going to be. And the party said, no, that's not, no, that's not true. And then they got more money. 
And so one of the questions you were getting, I want to say from Justice Sotomayor and perhaps some of the others, was, hold it. What makes you say this is all the money? We've already heard that before, and we've seen that's not the case. Um, and enter uh, one of the most aggressive uh, oral advocates in a case I've heard in a while, uh, including Lisa Blatt. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have to add her to the, the drinking game when she comes up. I think so. Uh, including Lisa Blatt was the argument of uh, Pratik Shaw of Aiken Gump. And he represents the uh, official committee of unsecured creditors of Purdue Pharma. So he's essentially the tort claimants. That's the they would be the most unsecured of unsecured creditors would be a tort claimant. And he his position. I mean, he was ex- very aggressive in saying this is the best we're going to do. If you don't do this, then the government's going to take every nickel that there is in the bankruptcy estate because you note the one point eight billion in the bankruptcy estate. And the government has a judgment for $1.775 billion. So they're going to take everything that's in the bankruptcy estate, or effectively all of it. Then it's going to be a race to the courthouse as the states try to get their judgments and collect. You're going to have chaos, and these people are going to be left with nothing. This was his argument. Right? Did I get it about right, Dan? I, 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 Very I much. Think I, I think I've got it right. And he and, and I forget which justice. Maybe it was Justice Kagan who commented on his passion and the forcefulness with which he was making this argument. I think it was like, her. My my clients, he was saying, are going to be left with nothing. And that's what we can't allow. What he also could say is all of the lawyers who have worked on this for so long are going <laughs> to be left with nothing. <laughs> because the individual claimants aren't getting very much, as no. is often the case in these situations. And as Dan mentioned, there's $40 trillion in claims. Now, I, I'm going to put aside for the minute my entire skepticism about this entire theory of liability. Put that aside. Let's assume that there's all this liability. Um, the There's huge claims here. And there's only so much money. Even if you took every nickel that all of the Sacklers have that apparently is squirreled away, and I use the word squirreled intentionally, all over the world, in trusts that are untouchable. This is another point that Shaw made. He's like, they, we can't get to this money. Yeah, there's all this money, but we can't get to it. They have done a very good job. They hired very good lawyers to to hide this money. Hide is not the right word, but to protect this money. Maybe hide too, but they, they've put it in places that are very difficult to get to because they apparently saw this coming and wanted to protect the dough. And they've got, I think, what collectively the idea is they've got, what, 20 or 30 billion? Something, yeah. something along something like those that. lines. And they're offering, I think the current offer is six. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the number. It's six or nine billion. Um, so it's not all of, it, it's on top of the two billion or in addition, or sorry, that includes the two billion or 1.8 billion that the company has in its estate. And, and then uh, the money that they've offered to try to get these claims settled. But it has these forced release. And the, the point that several of the justices were making, uh, Sotomayor, Jackson, I believe, where you didn't take on the burden of bankruptcy. Put all your assets on the table. Play the game the way bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is a trade-off, and you're yep. disrupting this trade-off by, you know, taking part of the benefit. I'm sorry, all of the benefit, getting a release, but not offering all of your assets. And and can you do that? The, there's a provision in the code that allows the court to that's being read. That's the, really the crux of the dispute here is over how broadly that provision that allows the court to do anything, ne- essentially anything necessary um, or appropriate to effectuate the plan and, and ordering these non-consent, these non-debtor releases or releases of non-debtors is one thing that's been used. And this is the, the statutory hook that they've used. Again, I'll, I'll, go, I'll circle back to where I began, which is the power of bankruptcy between the, the sole grant of federal authority to deal with it and combined with the supremacy clause gives a single federal bankruptcy judge and the district judge overseeing that district, that bankruptcy judge, an extraordinary amount of power over a whole lot of claims. And that's uh, and there's really no other procedure that I'm aware of in the law that has the ability to gather up claims like this and resolve them. As, fi- as finally as a bankruptcy petition can. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? I agree with you, Pat. It's, you know, 
whether the theories sound or not. Um, very, very interesting issues here, very important issues, and no, even if they were to decide uh, or decide uh, the issue, um, you know, and, and even with, with those passionate pleas for how to treat this, uh, as we're talking about, there's trillions of dollars of potential liability here, $8 billion or whatever the number might be, even if you could get it back. Uh, very interesting issues, very important for bankruptcy practitioners, and so it'll be interesting to see how this comes out. And, uh, and it's a, you know, it's an interesting case. If you if you if you read any of the stuff about you know what the SACWAS did and the kind of how they even before this oxycotton, you know, with other drugs, they uh, marketing and sales and kind of the stuff they did, you know, it, it seems pretty egregious, but um, but uh, still, the, the, the theory of, of liability here, like I said, is something to ponder. Um, it's again, not, it's is, not relevant for the issues in this it's case. Not, that's it's why not. I didn't. That's yeah. why I didn't get and, into and, my, and, and right. my somewhat bizarre theory of this. So. You're absolutely. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, it doesn't for these purposes. This is pure bankruptcy, and uh, but like you said, the, it, it, it does seem like a, bankruptcy is a very unique process and kind of given the circumstances you can understand why a special regime was set up right these are typically especially in these pure bankruptcy cases not so much chapter 11 and some of the restructuring stuff that goes on but it's it's uh you know you're trying to uh, uh, gather the limited this assets this is a chapter 11 is it it's not a it's not a it, liquidation under 7 this is a chapter 11 yeah it's yeah. an 11 it's a yeah. reorganization not a not a liquidation but uh, yeah i meant more Bigger magnitude, some of the, sure. the sure. those twenty-four hours, or whatever they call them, the dine and dash type of yeah, yeah, elevens. Yeah. That, where that's it's, not this. That's not this. Um, you know, so it is, but it, it gives such vast powers. I mean, it does, and, and the bankruptcy judges have vast powers, and they're they're not uh, they're they're not uh, Article Three judges. So that's an interesting thing as well. So well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. In, in, indeed. So with that. That brings us to um, our BI COVID uh, GIPA BIPA segment. Dan, why don't you tell us what we found here? Yeah, what what we found here was uh, one of our our friends from the uh, LinkedIn and uh, we've uh, from the CBA Insurance Law Committee, Bradley Jlatt. Uh, he had a post on the University of Washington. They got a uh, at least a procedural uh, win on their motion to dismiss in the state of. Washington. It was shocking. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was around the same uh, same time as the uh, Washington uh, Huskies. Is it uh, won their their playoff game last uh, Monday and will play in the national championship? Maybe before you heard this edition or after, depending on when you listen to our podcast. They may be uh, national know. champions. They may be. Um, but it's uh, again. It's uh, I, I mentioned it's a motion to dismiss because, as we've talked about in this show, the the victories for insureds in these cases have only been at that stage. They haven't been in the final uh, court of uh, resolution. Well, there was one. There was one, one trial in Texas. Yeah, I know. Um, a hospital group won, I think. Yeah, um, and maybe settled but, or something. Yeah. But I'm at the appellate level. This. Will they make more money off of winning the insurance coverage dispute or the national championship where they to win it? I'm going to go with the former as opposed to the latter. I but, think so. Uh, they'll take both. They'll um, take both. <laughs> so we'll we'll keep track of it. And uh, just an interesting case. And uh, as we've talked about, those cases are starting to peter out just because there's uh, it's been been a quite a period of time, almost you know four years since the beginning of the pandemic. So. Yep. So with that, uh, that brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong this week. We went two and zero. Oh. Dan is 288 and 59 and and 19. I am 285.5, 62.5, and 19. The two cases were both written by uh, Justice Taylor of the Illinois Appellate Court, 1st District, 6th Division, and they'll be the topic of my column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this week. Um, so I'm going to try to cover some things that are a little bit different because there's only 60 pages uh, to read between the two opinions that are of really really paramount, really uh, supreme importance. Uh, they both touch on issues of first impression. Uh, Taylor versus City of Chicago involves a claim under the Domestic Violence Act 
against the city of Chicago for not providing an adequate protection to or, or not taking, quote, what's required in the statute, all reasonable steps to protect the victim of domestic abuse from uh, further abuse. This is a situation where uh, a woman who's living boyfriend, that's the term used in the court. I hadn't heard that term in quite a while, but that's the term the court used. No. To, I think to establish the domestic intimate relationship between the two. I think in so. In order to satisfy that it's a domestic. When I did, when I, when I did criminal law uh, as a, my last semester in law school, one of the first things you had to figure out in a domestic violence case was, was it a domestic? Uh, and that's oftentimes what you did. Just being boyfriend, girlfriend didn't qualify. Did they have? Did they live together? If it's Florida law, they had to live together for the to be domestic to get the kinds of enhancements that are necessary to establish uh, domestic violence. So anyway, this wasn't a, a dispute over whether there was a domestic intimate, an intimate domestic relationship. There was. Question was whether this the police they come across this they, they get called to the, the scene. They're they're told it's a domestic violence dispute. It is obvious that this person, the boyfriend, is having a substantial mental health crisis. He's wielding a samurai sword. Where in God's name did he get that? He's got knives in addition to the sword. He's burning grease. He's, he thinks that the mob is coming to get him. I mean, he's got all kinds of things. He restrains the, 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 uh, the, his girlfriend and her son. They finally get out. She helps the police get coax him out. They finally get him under control. One of the officers gets injured in this process. They take him to Stroger, and the officers wipe their hands in the situation, believing that Stroger was going to commit this guy. Because he, but they didn't then tell him all the thing, tell the the, uh, the doctors about the samurai swords and the burning of grease, apparently. Uh, but the guy gets sedated after much effort by the, both the hospital staff and the, and the law enforcement, and they leave. And a couple hours later, he's let go. And 25 hours later, he strangles this poor woman. And they bring a claim against the police, and the police say, well, several defenses. Number one, there was evidentiary issues we won't get into. Number two, that they're, they're entitled to judgment notwithstanding the verdict because they didn't violate the act. The court goes, no, you didn't do any of the things. You had the act on you. Apparently, they had a copy of the act on them, and they didn't follow any of the procedures in there. Uh, list, you know, Take her to a place of shelter, help her get her belongings, tell her about an uh, uh, emergency order of protection, uh, these kinds of things, do none of those things. They basically rely on the doctors to do what they think the doctors will do. The doctors didn't, because the doctors apparently weren't given all the information, according to uh, the plaintiff and their witnesses, namely the doctors, said, well, we didn't know about that. Um, but even if they had, and this gets us to the second issue, the causation issue, even if they had known, and if they had put him on a 72-hour hold, what would have prevented him from going back and killing her again, killing her? And so I really struggle with the causation argument here because, you know, they, they, the point the court makes is that you didn't take all necessary, all reasonable steps to protect her. Well, even if they had, there's no guarantee he wouldn't have hunted her down and killed her, but they, they wouldn't have been liable under the, under, the, under the Domestic Violence Act. We would have had an evaluation of whether they took reasonable steps. They said, well, you should have arrested him. Well, the police believed that he didn't have the mens re to understand he committed a crime. Well, the court points out, well, whether he had the mens re or not gets into a very esoteric argument about insanity defense versus legal culpability. I'm going to go with most cops aren't going to understand that. Indeed, most lawyers aren't going to understand that distinction. And they're certainly not in the heat of the moment, especially in an environment where police are told, you know, we should deal with mental health as mental health and we should deal with criminality as criminality. And this guy wasn't criminally responsible because he was freaking insane and he was waving around samurai swords and claiming the mob was coming to get him. Maybe they were, but I'm pretty sure they weren't. Um, and so I, I, I really, th this seems to be a case of first impression. I don't think this is the last we've heard of it. The jury entered a verdict of $3 million um, against the city. Uh, the, the, to deal with one issue, if you may be thinking, well, why did they sue the doctor? Well, the doctor didn't owe her a duty. Now, we had this similar situation when we talked in Indiana. We had an Indiana case where a, uh, a doctor uh, didn't uh, deal with a, a patient in a way, and he went and killed, with his, uh, killed his grandfather. And the court held that there was potentially, potential, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, there was potential liability there. Um, in this case, the statute directly imposes a legal duty on the city and its officers to take steps. 
But I don't know what steps would have been sufficient. If he was sufficiently insane and sufficiently motivated, there's no place they could have taken her to have protected her had he wanted to kill her. Now, the fact they dropped her back off at home uh, would, you know, okay, be pretty easy to find. I get that. But he also, she also asked for him to be released. She, because he had a job interview, I'm sure that would have gone great. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so there, there's a whole range of issues here and it puts cops in a really difficult position. Um, and, and I don't know how they could have dealt with it. They could have dealt with it better. Sure. But I don't know how they could have dealt with it and avoided liability. If we're going to have this attenuated causation, uh, finding and just to be just to be clear, and I quote this in my column, to how displeased the court was with the police officer's conduct and the argument of the city that they didn't act willfully and wantonly, I will quote, the undisputed facts about what actions the officers took and did not take, coupled with the evidence adduced at trial that Officer Paxson was at the end of his ship at shift at going into his, quote, weekend, end quote. And that Officer Fox's shift ended while she was still at the hospital provided sufficient evidence for the jury to infer that the officers were more interested in going home than in complying with their obligations under the act to take reasonable measures to protect Vanessa. Vanessa's the decedent. Under these circumstances, the evidence was sufficient for the jury to find that officers' conduct was willful and want, end quote. That is scathing, uh, a scathing indictment of what the police officers did. So, Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? I uh, don't have much to add. I mean, that's uh, a very interesting case, and I, I agree with you that it puts police in a very uh, difficult uh, situation. And uh, as we've talked about on the show before, my dad's a former Chicago police officer, and cops are not, uh, you know, not not without faults like everybody. But this, some of these cases, and we've talked about qualified immunity and all the uh, other situations, Pat, where those go too far, but. You know, on the other hand, you have to, you, you can't impose these, they, they can't be uh, all-knowing and all-forward-looking to be able to prevent things. They also things. can't be in all places at all times. Right. It's impossible. And, yeah. And so it's a tragic situation. It's tragic because not only did this woman lose her life and her son lost a mother and her, and her siblings lost a sister, uh, but this man who plainly needed help mental health, didn't get it, and now I have to presume he's in some institution, whether it's a correctional institution or a mental institution, uh, for a very long time. And so it's tragic all the way around. Um, And now you and I, Dan, as citizens or residents of the city of Chicago, get to foot the bill. Uh, And and I I don't know how enthused I am about that. because I didn't do any, I mean, these cops are put in a really difficult situation, and I don't. I, I in hindsight, is twenty twenty. It is, and I, I, I get that they didn't do. I, is it unreasonable for them to take to the hospital with a person that's crazy and not expect the person to get committed? And if he had been committed, would that have been all reasonable steps? No, it yeah. wouldn't have been under the court's analysis. They would have had to do other things. I, 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 are we cops really supposed to turn into social service agents? I, I, I don't know. They're, they're not lawyers. They're not social service agents. They're cops. We only yep. want to be cops sometimes, but now we want to take on all these other jobs too. It's it's impossible. It is. They're being asked to do. Um, which brings us to the second case, uh, Solorzano versus uh, Magnani. And what this case is about is about the Gilbert test for a parent agency in the hospital context. And this case is truly a case of first impression because it deals with a different situation than normally we have in Gilbert. Normally you're dealing with the, the plaintiff or the patient goes to emergency room and signs a release. That's not this one. This one is the doctor has an office at a professional building at the hospital, West Suburban Medical Center in this case in Oak Park. And the plaintiff sees him there after having been directed to go see this doctor at that hospital or I'm sorry, at that facility to, to uh, get her treatment. And she signs a consent form that says in the name of the practice is Romano orthopedics, LLC. She signs that the form doesn't say he's independent of the hospital. Why would it? 
He doesn't work for the hospital. He rents space from them in their professional plaza. And on the other side of the ledger is it's the same entrance to the hospital as to the professional building. And there's no signs that tell anyone otherwise. And this, and the, 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 apparently the website tells uh, that, you know, how wonderful uh, the, the doctors are there. And so she had reason to believe both under the holding out prong and on the uh, justifiable reliance prong that he was, um, uh, that there's a question of fact as to whether the hospital, which had gotten summary judgment, was entitled to that summary judgment on a parent agency. But I want to read this, Dan. There's another quote that I, 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 and then I've got a comment. Shocking. We also question whether an average consumer would understand that an LLC is an acronym for limited liability company and that an LLC is a legal entity similar to a corporation through which business is conducted. So that, that's the first part of the quote. This relates to at the top of the form, it said Romano Orthopedics LLC. And they make the argument, well, obviously they knew it was a different entity and not the hospital, not West Suburban. Going back to the quote, while the employment relationship may be obvious to Romano and West Suburban Medical Center, patients like Solorzano are entitled to disclosure of essential facts about the relationship between their healthcare providers and should not be left to speculate about corporate ownership structures and employment relationships. End quote. The holding out is something that the hospital has to do. And I went back and looked at the statute yesterday, and all the statutes require that you disclose, are you an LLC, an Inc., or whatever. Our firm's firm's an LLP, a limited liability partnership. Others are PLLCs or PLLP or all these different things. You have have PCs. When I was at Pretzel and Stouffer, the firm was chartered, which is just a corporation. You know, you've got all the different ways that, that law firms and other professional services businesses, whether they're accounting firms or insurance brokerages or law firms are organized, and we have to list the kind of entity we are so that people know this is a separate legal person uh, that we referred to earlier. And it has and its, and its members have limited liability of some kind, one kind or another. Um, and that's why we do that. So everyone knows what we're dealing with is not the person, but an entity and an entity separate from other things. I, 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 I really struggle with this. I have no doubt that PLA is going to be filed in both of these cases. I think it should be granted in both of these cases. I have no idea what the Supreme Court would do with these cases, but I, 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 they're, they're very problematic uh, because there's nothing that West Suburban Hospital did in this case. They didn't treat the woman. She went into a building attached to the hospital. Do we really want hospitals and medical facilities to start separating their buildings and making it harder for people to get care, more difficult for people to get care if they're getting an outpatient procedure and things go south? Don't you want to be able to just drag them next door and get them into the OR if you need to? If they need a higher level of care because things went south in the outpatient outpatient facility? Um, isn't that where we want people to be, to be able to get better care, make things more convenient, easier for people to get to get care? Isn't that why we put all these things together and not having a line that says Romano Orthopedics isn't West Suburban all of a sudden makes West Suburban a... Uh, so a lot of leases are getting rewritten and a lot of signs are being put up uh, this morning. Uh, around Illinois uh, to uh, make sure that uh, people know that the doctor is not the hospital um, because this opinion says that they are. <laughs> Dan, what are your thoughts? Uh, I agree with all that, but the, but the, the cynic of me is that, that uh, they, at one time they were all together path and, and the care was provided and the reason for these things was legal machinations to get us in a position that we're in where nobody's well, responsible to, to nobody you don't have to be a cynic economy. you don't have to be a cynic to come to that conclusion justice taylor starts with that he says quote, in the competition of health well, for those that didn't read the opinion yet but you should in the competition for healthcare market share hospitals today remote themselves to the public as centers of comprehensive medical care with teams of highly competent and compassionate physicians and ancillary care providers here's the relevant parts of dan's point but in order to limit their liability hospitals employ few if any physicians in the medical malpractice context, our parent agency case law largely involves physicians, yada yada. But you get the idea. But it's that- but it's everything, right? It's 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 Uber. It's 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 the gig economy. So it's but but that's where we're at. So but uh, uh, agree with you on all that. And and again, it's uh, uh, both of these get PLAs, and like you said, no idea what the what are what are our our seven uh, uh, top judges in the state will do with this. No idea, but I have... They need to, though. They need to, because these are really important issues. They need to be addressed. 
that's why they're the topic of my column, notwithstanding the fact that they were written by the same the same justice yep. for the court. And, and 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 just yeah. So there we go. So with that, we need to do our predictions. Sure to go wrong this week. Um, and so we have uh, Cosby versus Clark. I think they're going to affirm. I think they're going to take the case, and I think they're going to affirm their procedure. I think so. I, I agree. Moore versus United States comes out in favor of Moore. On a limited basis. On I a think limited right. basis. I agree, yes. Yeah, I think they're just going to hit this one. Yeah, yep. this is one where I'm not going to complain that Justice Roberts insisted on a narrow opinion. This is where I'm going to go, yes, please, narrow. <laughs> don't, throw a, don't throw a hand grenade uh, into the middle of the tax, the tax uh, law. And then uh, Harrington versus Purdue. I think Purdue wins this. I think, there's, I, think so. I think there's a lot of institutionalists on the court that this is this proceed and understand the concept, the, the, the consequence of not doing this yeah, um, or allowing this procedure. I think that's going to lead to some legislation and some, the Congress needs to act uh, to limit. Now, whether that actually would pass, yeah. I don't know, but there's certainly going to be proposals to get right. Congress to modify the, the bankruptcy code. Yep. I think that's right. So, so with that, uh, Dan, we'll, we'll take our leave. Uh, we've been on long enough. Very long segment. Mostly me, Yimri Amory. Apologies. Uh, we'll see everybody on Friday for the special episode. Oh, one more. Oh, two more things. Sorry. Thursday, there is a candidates forum uh, at the Union League Club uh, on state's attorney. Uh, I can't emphasize enough how important this election is for state's attorney. We're going to have a new, a new one. Uh, no Kim one. Fox yep. is not is not running for re-election. One of her uh, there's uh, so there's three people. They're going to be there at least the two de- the two primary Democratic uh, candidates and the one Republic announced Republican candidate uh, hosted by uh, Andrea Hannes of uh, the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and uh, the editor over there. Um, and so that'll be very interesting. And then on the seventeenth, also at the Union League Club, Will Bode. And Josh Blackman are debating Section 3 of uh, the 14th Amendment. You might have heard of this. Maybe yeah. you didn't hear about it until the last couple of weeks, but uh, you certainly have heard about it uh, before then. But Will Bode is, the, is a professor at the University of Chicago, who he, along with Professor Paulson, wrote the 120-some page article that kind of touched this off in the public consciousness. This had been talked about before, but they really crystallized it on what it meant to be re- insurrection and whether you, uh, Donald Trump was... Uh, had violated that provision and thus was ineligible. And then Josh Blackman is a professor at South Texas College of Law. And uh, so I I imagine where where, uh, Professor Blackman's coming down on this. I know where uh, Professor Bode's coming down on this, having written it and heard him speak on their podcast, uh, podcast he has, Divided Argument. So very interesting. I would encourage people. That's put on by the the Federalist Society. You can find uh, information about signing up for that. On their website. Too interesting. Too interesting uh, uh, speakers, writers, thinkers, and so it'll be an interesting discussion for sure. Indeed, and so and and, and you couldn't find more important, relevant topics than these two, at least for Cook County residents and for citizens of the United States with respect to the Fourteenth Amendment issue. Uh, that's uh, the issue du jour, and 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 we'll be certainly talking about the the uh, argument when it comes up. On February eighth, the court took, uh, granted the petition for redistribution. No, it's the Colorado case. Colorado and case. They're going to hear argument on February eighth, and given the, the how expedited they've made the uh, schedule, I imagine we will have an we'll have an opinion very quickly, as you would need, as one would need, considering there are primaries going on and there's an election in November. We right. kind of need to know if the major candidate for one of the parties is allowed to be on the ballot or not. Right. Uh, Important speaking issue. of throwing grenades into the middle of a of a process, you know, if if he it would be it would be a hell of a thing to find out in September he's not allowed to be on the ballot, or after after November were he to be elected, uh, that he's not allowed to have run. So it's good to find out sooner rather than later on these things, uh, and so For we'll sure. find out sooner, I imagine. So with that, now we'll take our leave, and we'll see everybody on Friday for our special episode regarding third party litigation funding. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn 
and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.